Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Matthew Wright Show on Crucible of Broadcast Excellence. Talk Radio. Put it on and keep it on. Too busy to catch us on the afternoons on talk radio. Too many children to care for. Too many jobs to manage. Well, never fear. Help is here in the shape of the Matthew Wright podcast, where we cut down three hours of entertainment and enlightenment every afternoon into tiny bite-sized morsels just for you, you busy so-and-so. So sit back and enjoy the best of the Matthew Wright Show here on talk radio. Making headlines today uh, is the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, who has spoken of his personal shame at the Church of England's institutional racism and has promised to replace a hostile environment with an hospitable welcome. But am I alone in wondering when he's going to do the same for gay believers? Uh, at the General Synod meeting, which is going on as I speak uh, in London, uh, Welby said, uh, when we look at our own church, we are still deeply institutionally racist. Let's be clear about that. He said he was personally sorry and ashamed. I'm ashamed of our history. I'm ashamed of our failure. I'm ashamed of, our, of my lack of urgent voice to the church. Am I... Have I got this right? Isn't the Anglican Church really big in Africa with something like yes. 4 million members, where yes. it's also famously homophobic yeah, as well? So I, just so. Wanted to, I just, yeah. so I guess what Welby's talking about is the Church of England in England itself. And there are some horrible stories I could share. One involves a woman uh, called Doreen Brown, initially barred from entering, I think it was, was it Welby's Church? It can't have been Welby's Church, in 61, along with her mother, father and siblings, due to the colour of her skin. What? Yeah, now, the race thing, is that's the one that's making headlines today, but I am not going to separate it from gay believers. We've seen uh, Welby in the past dodge the issue of, of, of actually responding to mm. questions, is gay sex sinful or mm. not? There's the weird fact that the Anglican Church is excluded from things like gay marriages, and I don't know if that's, uh, if that's satisfactory. On the one hand, to say we're going to try and deal with our racist issues, but they're not dealing with their... Homophobic I, I've never understood why Christians have such a problem with homophobia, given that um, Jesus used to hang out with 12 men and constantly went fishing for men. That's what they did. <laughs> Thank and you. So That's many, what they did. So well, many fishing for men. Good. Let's go fishing for men. Let's well, to cry it out. Well, I'm fishing for a woman. Jane Ozan <laughs> is her name. We've spoken to her before. She's a member of the General Synod and she joins us on the line again now. Good afternoon to you, Jane. Hi, Matthew. So, um, here we go again. <laughs> I think we had a similar conversation this time last year. <laughs> yes, uh, it, on the one hand, well, let, let's, let's deal with uh, institutional racism within the Church of England. I'm assuming that Welby was, was discussing that in the context of the Church of England within the United Kingdom. 
Absolutely, and it's so important uh, that we really do uh, apologise, lament, uh, recognise how deeply institutionally racist we are. I'm very conscious I'm a, a white privileged woman speaking right now to you um, about an issue which, let's be honest, there are many uh, black and minority ethnic LGBT people who have such, such a difficult time in our church. But well said. Yes, yesterday um, was an important day um, for the millions of, of, of our, our black and minority ethnic uh, Anglicans uh, in England, um, uh, those who've been in our churches and stayed despite the, the horrors of abuse they've received, those who have felt they've had to lead. And, you know, one of the important things for me yesterday, um, quite a, I, I, on top of the apologies and the, I think some honesty about how bad yeah. we still are, was the action steps that Synod wanted to see happen. So we're in the, you know, pointing uh, as someone to, to assess where we are right now with our institutional racism. We're going to do some research to understand the cost of lives, you know, people's lives have been impacted because of this. And we need to, you know, put some measures in to make sure we're, we're not just saying things, but we're actually going to do things could, could, that could, impact people's lives. Could, yeah. could you could you explain or try to explain how back in the early 60s, which were far less enlightened times, that I guess, than they are now, that uh, men of God, as it would have been primarily it would have been male clergy, would have interpreted the gospel of Jesus that, that to love everyone as meaning love everyone but not black people. I just can't quite get my head around that. Well, I, I agree. Today it's very difficult to see that, but there's something called unconscious bias, isn't there, yes, which I think yes. we're far more aware of now. When we don't really understand the privilege of the position we're in. We're not even aware of the unconsciousness, if you like, of how prejudiced we are. I do think in times gone by, people assume that God was white, that Jesus yes, was white, yes. you know, and of course he wasn't. Yes. He was a man from the Middle East. Yeah. And, you know, we had Bibles with pictures of Jesus as a white man, and, and um, you know, even, um, we were just touching on earlier, uh, um, language, you know, we talked about, I think your, your co-presenter was just talking about fishes of men, yes, actually, yes. What, the, what, the, what the Greek actually says isn't that, it's about fishes of all people, but yeah. we had some deeply misogynistic, you know, well, um, that, but, racist language, well, we're, we're learning to be better, we are. Well, the, the, this, well this brings us to the crux, doesn't it, really, Jane, because it, demonstrably here, uh, Justin Welby and the Anglican Church looking to improve its record on racism, and then I look at some of homophobia, and I'm, I'm sure this you, you, you'll accept well, this. It just doesn't seem to be moving. On, no, on you're absolutely right. We had a very difficult, sorry to cut in no, there, we had a very difficult day yesterday, and in fact, many of us in the chamber who are LGBT uh, were in tears during a presentation just a few hours earlier where um, we were given a chair that we had to sit on and were surrounded by primarily straight people discussing us. I felt almost like a specimen in a jar. And uh, in fact, I think it was so awful. So many people commented afterwards that we really have to stop this ridiculous conversation. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Because I always yeah. think, can you imagine if all the lives of straight people were allowed, they, they could only be decided upon by gay mm -hmm. people? If gay people had to have a vote to see yeah. whether, whether straight people were allowed to do X, Y or Z. I mm. mean, that's how ridiculous it is. The Matthew Wright Show on Talk Radio. 
Right now, though, I'm going to return to my sort of minor obsession with the census. Uh, we're due to have another census next year, uh, but if the papers are right, it could be the last. Why? I mean, if census has been a value for all the years that we've had them in the past, why would they not be a value in the future? Uh, joining us to, to share his expert thought is uh, Dr David Spiegelhalter, and he's the author of The Art of Statistics. Yeah, statistics, lies and more statistics. He joins us on the line now. Good afternoon to you, David. Good afternoon. So, um, what, what, what is the story of our census? What, why, why has it been such a sort of significant tool for government over the years? Well, it's a significant tool for all governments. It's, it's quite an extraordinary thing. It's been going on for about 200 years, although the first proper one was about 1841. I mean, most people know it because of its use in genealogy. It was a completely, I think, unpredicted um, use of the data. A hundred years after it's collected, it's opened up and, and enables people to find out amazing things about who was living in their house and what their, what their ancestors were doing. So, and that's, I think, given people quite a lot of knowledge about it and, and affection for it. Has it cha- I mean, I'm, I'm guessing the kind of questions that, that were asked have changed massively over the centuries. Well, and I, just yeah, wondered- I was looking at what, the 1841 one was the standard stuff. It's the first time they actually went, before that they just asked, asked, you know, for a parish how many houses there were and things like this. But this 1841 was, was basically what's done now. You, know, you look at each household and you ask how many people are in it and how old they are and what they do and, and, uh, and where they come from and so on. Um, and then it, it changed more and more added in to try to find out about the state of houses, how many rooms there were. It used to be things like, have you got an inside toilet and have you got a refrigerator? But those right. are gone now. Although they're still asking about whether you've got central heating or not. Um, That's because they want to rip it all out, David. We've been hearing <laughs> about that late and, re- and replace, it, replace it with a greener, greener heating that we still don't know exactly what that they, will be. They do. <laughs> they're asking, are you using a heat pump and all this kind of thing now? Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the, so the questions have changed. This year, it's the first time they're exploring one that not only asks you the sex that you're registered with, but what um, I, gender identity you, you choose to have. And so it, it does change with the times, but it's also important to have a lot of continuity because the crucial thing is looking at the trends in the population. Of course. You know, who's, who's um, you know, where people are coming from. Also, work styles, transport styles, and so on. Now... Sir Ian Diamond, Professor Sir Ian Diamond, he is the UK's national statistician, yep. and he has said, as I rec- as recall, that the census is as good as it's possible to get. So when I hear or read in papers that they're now looking at different ways to do the census, presumably do it cheaper mm. as well as more effectively, mm. I immediately, my in- instinct is to be mildly concerned. The census <laughs> isn't a life-or-death matter for me, but when I start reading about something we do really, really well and they start wanting to look at ways of doing it cheaper or more effectively, whatever that is a euphemism for these days, I do, I do worry, do you? Yes, yeah, I, I think so. And, and it, it's interesting that the story has generated a lot of, um, has generated concern because people, although it sort of sits there in the background, people feel that it's the reasonable thing. Every 10 years, someone comes around and yeah. gives a form to your household and everyone fills it in. It's legal obligation to do so. And this is, has been part of our lives for, for, for you know, centuries. So, but um, the crucial thing is it's, it's costing nearly a billion pounds this year and it's just going oh. up and up and up. <laughs> and, um, and, and also, you know, the way in which the data is uh, collected means that you know, every 10 years is also not often enough for a rapidly changing society. And frankly, the whole idea of filling in a form 
every 10 years is in our modern age pretty yes. dated. When yeah. you think of the amount of data yeah. that's available that we're sharing all the time with companies, for heaven's sakes, but it's also available in, um, you know, in other record systems, then there's fantastic data there, in, as in Diamond mentioned, in, in council tax returns, in GP records, driving licenses, all sorts of ways in which we're providing information to uh, the government, and that it really makes sense to try to bring that together, of course, with all the safeguards about privacy and so on. But, you know, that's happening throughout statistics, in fact. You know, we, um, in, uh, you know, we used to do, well, we still do some you know, big surveys all the time. But frankly, you know, that, that is pretty old-fashioned now. And um, there's, been a, there's been a big change in the way statistics are, are, are done. What, what they I, use, you know, our routine data more. Because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work out what, because the statistics, there's different, mathematical ways of mm-hmm. deriving averages and so on and so yep. forth. But why would, would the nature of statistics change so fundamentally, as you're implying? Well, that? a lot of it, I think, is, is, of course, actually doing surveys is, is very time-consuming, very yeah. expensive, very person-based. Yes. Actually, this one, they're hoping to get, you know, 75% of the data online. So, you know, you can, you will be able to fill in the form online and I'm, that's that information. I'm finding the billion-pound bill really yeah. difficult to swallow. I have to say, there's 20 Seven million homes, yeah. and as you said, eighty-five percent of the data can be gathered online. So you start thinking we're, we're talking about uh, really a, a relatively few number of homes, perhaps uh, where we can't get the data online. And I can't, for the life of me, work out why it costs a billion pounds. Yeah, it does seem a lot, doesn't, doesn't it? it? Yeah, but, you know, you do have, you have a, <laughs> a lot of, um, you know, uh, there are, you know, you, you still there will be a lot of face-to-face work going yeah. on. And, and, of course, the crucial thing is it's the, the real expense is the hard-to-get people. I mean, there's no point in just getting the people who like filling yeah, in forms to reply. You're not going to get and because it's the hard to get people. Single young men living on their own, you know, are, are difficult to get. <laughs> and homeless people, because even more of difficult. Of course, great and, point. And so, great um, point. Th- and though that's where the expense is, is trying to fill up the whole, get the whole picture. And because as it's so important for working out what services had to be provided for the community then it's very important that you do get the whole picture and not just people who like filling in for You see, that's why I was wondering, when you, you, you reminded me about the, the last census and the, the couple of things that I can remember we, we, a lot of people were talking about during the last census was people lying about their religion, uh, Jedi Knight. Jedi, I think it, was, it, it was, went down it, the first time, it was 330,000. <laughs> 330,000? The, the number of Jedi Knights <laughs> dropped to 170,000. So as a religion, it's obviously not succeeding. <laughs> I had no idea there were that many, uh, I was going to say idiots, but that many Jedi Knights out there. That, that's yeah. blown my mind. So th- there was that going on. There was also, as, as I recall, an awful lot of talk from people saying, OK, you say it's illegal for me to fill in my census. Come and nick me then. And, and, and I think that, that there, there's seem to be people I said, it's difficult to categorise but I got the sense that maybe there was a growing sense that people, a, se- a significant perhaps growing section of society just wasn't taking the census seriously Yeah, I, I, I think, that, I mean they're doing pilots at the moment, they're just, just at the moment, they're running, running pilots out. and my understanding is that you know, they're really going quite well, I think basically people do feel there's a uh, you know, well, obviously, it's a legal obligation. Yeah. I actually feel, as a statistician, boring old statistician, I think it's a bit of a moral obligation as well to provide this information so that government can work better. They, they're not to do. Uh, is, you know, your privacy is completely protected. I mean, there have been, um, you know, in the past, you know, quite 
campaigns you know complaining about it i think that i mean given the fact that we're giving you know it's a bit ironic if you don't give this information to government you know <laughs> under privacy laws when we're giving out vast information amount of information about ourselves i mean you know google would know what kind of dog you've got let alone you know um you know, the, you know Very how true. many people live in the household the matthew wright show on talk radio Bombing of Germany has long been an affair of day and night attacks, but now, with the Germans beaten back within their own frontiers, that bombing has become more intensive and more inescapable than ever. These formations, flying forts of the 8th American Army Air Force, are on their way to Dresden. The Russians must certainly have had quite a good view of the RAF attacks, for our own crews reported that on their way home, Dresden's fires were clearly visible from over a hundred miles away. Launched in February 1945, right at the end of the Second World War, the merciless bombing of Dresden obliterated the beautiful German city and wiped out 25,000 of its terrified residents. 75 years on, the burning question remains... Was Winston Churchill's order to wreak death and destruction necessary? Critics insist the war was already won and the annihilation of Dresden and its people was an act of vicious revenge. In his new book, Dresden, The Fire and the Darkness, author Sinclair Mackay chronicles the tragedy through the stories of those who suffered uh, arguably the worst non-nuclear air raid in human history. Welcome, Sinclair. Oh, thank you very nice much. Yes. Um, was the bombing of Dresden necessary? Uh, the, the, the Russians thought so. Stalin specifically requested Dresden be targeted by the RAF and the US Air Force because it was a big transport hub for the German military who, who were going through. And all the factories uh, in and around Dresden were engaged in war production work still. So yes, it was yes, it was clear that the Nazis were finished. It was, But the Nazis didn't know that. And there, there was this, this terrible <laughs> effort to kind of stop them. But having said that, 796 Lancaster bombers flying in two waves in the space of one night, I wonder My if it had God. just gone beyond rationality at that stage. Could you sort of contextualise it relative to the Blitz, which went on for longer. Yes, um, yes. And in terms of what well, was more important, what was more deadly? What... I will, yes, I mean, the, the Blitz, uh, which started sort of September 1940, uh, aiming for London's Docklands, and then sort of spreading around the country too to other kind of ports, uh, Southampton, Portsmouth, Glasgow, Liverpool. Uh, terrible, terrible bombing raids. And then, of course, the bombing of Coventry. Uh, in November 1940, uh, which was absolutely flattened. as a terrifying number of uh, fatalities. So this idea of bringing the war to civilians had started very early on, this terrifying idea of total war, against which there was no real kind of effective defence. Do we have regulation but, at that time? Because there I mean, were, war in, the 19, in, the, in the 1920s and 1930s, there were kind of legal, uh, uh, legal kind of parameters kind of set up by various kind of, various kind of bodies, and everyone kind of insisted, no, they would not be, the, they would not be the people to come start this. So, you have the Second World War, and it begins to escalate. And then from the RAF's point of view, uh, the bombing of Lübeck in 1942, then the bombing of Hamburg in 1943, mm. there became this obsession with not just using high explosives, but raining fire down on a city, starting fires, and starting fire storms, which in themselves are the most terrifying kind of phenomenon of physics. We've seen it recently with the Australian bushfires, actually. Yeah. Scientists are still studying the weird science of these fire tornadoes, which if you're anywhere near them, you will actually be picked 
up bodily off the ground and whirled into the sky, burning as you do so. And this is what happened that night to the people of Dresden. Hearing the, 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 the news footage there, and they were talking about seeing the, the flames from 100 miles yeah, away. Yeah, you could burn yeah. your lungs if you're a mile away. If you inhaled the uh, air a mile yes. away, you, your lungs would burn. Yes, and if you were anywhere near it and you weren't wearing goggles, uh, because a firestorm also creates a kind of fire hurricane as well, and the air was filled with molten embers. So people who weren't even directly underneath uh, the, the bomber's trajectory, this hurricane started... Uh, terrible, terrible wounds, injuries. Your clothing will catch light simply by dint of being dry. Heat. I mean, the, the terror of that night is incalculable. G given that and the massacre of innocent women, children and men, uh, what do the people of Dresden think of it today? Well, you see, that, that, there is another side to the story because there, there are so many people here who insist that it should be labelled a war crime. I, I always really hesitate over that, actually. I, I just don't think the we're the in ground, those kind the of grounds, The grounds being that, that it was an attack on civilians? Uh, or? Uh, and also that it was viewed as some kind of savage retribution for, for earlier... And actually, there's no evidence that that was the case at all. This was a bombing raid like kind of all others. And they went on to bomb other cities like Chemnitz and Magdeburg immediately uh, the, the night afterwards. So there is a... Obviously, in Dresden, you know, if you if you spoke with a British accent in Dresden up until the mid-1990s, uh, there were older people... Idea. There were older people who would draw back with a slight oh, intake of breath. Really? But that really, really is not the case now. The whole emphasis now is very much on reconciliation and friendship. And for years, Dresden has been twinned with Coventry. I and oh, wow. since the okay. 1950s. And Dresden, as, as you know, after the Second World War, Dresden then fell within the communist uh, sphere of influence under Stalin and became part of East Germany, yes. this communist regime. So from one form of totalitarianism to another. But Did they get the concrete as well that goes with uh, they did, totalitarian Stalinism? No wonder they twinned with Coventry. They, that would be a nice <laughs> partnership. <laughs> there are some, some aesthetic kind of echoes. Actually, some, you, a lot of the Soviet architecture remains in Dresden now and it's come into its own comes of the, you know, after all this time. But also what they've done in Dresden is the most extraordinary, kind of miraculous rebuild of the Baroque architectural treasures. Uh, the Opera House, the Fraunkirche, the Church of Our Lady, this amazing domed cathedral, which has been rebuilt exactly in every single tiny particular. And you'd think, oh, but it's just a fake. It's just a reconstruction. It's as that's. But it's not. You go in there and it has genuine life and genuine soul. The timing of Dresden coming early 45. Are there parallels to be drawn with the American nuclear bombs against Japan and, and the claims yes. there that that... I'm still not too yeah. sure whether whether one can make the argument it, it was Nagasaki and Hiroshima that led to the end of the war. I don't well, know. Well, there are different claimed. things going on. I mean, the point of the, dread, the bombing of Dresden was partly to uh, in an effort to destroy the Nazi regime and Nazi morale. They thought it might just collapse overnight. A sort of decisive blow, uh, so, a, a, a decisive stand. But as I say, they were kind of, I think they were kind of beyond rationality at that stage. The one difference... I mean, the, now Dresden is on the road to Nagasaki, but the one difference we really have to remember here is the young bomber crews. We're not just talking about uh, a single plane with an atomic bomb. We're talking about 796 bomber planes filled with... Uh, flight crew who are doing the most extraordinarily courageous thing because they know there's every chance they're not coming back from these missions. They know there's every chance every time they fly out deep into the darkness of eastern Germany that they too could be consumed in molten flames. And I've spent a lot of time reading the memoirs and diaries of these young airmen. You could think the image of them is down the pub, uh, you know, popsies, ludicrous acronym-based banter. Actually, the truth <laughs> of it is that they were 
intelligent and sensitive and deeply reflective. And after the war, you know, how do you begin to talk about the kind of things that they saw? We must always remember, actually, the, the amazing contribution that these incredible young men yeah. made to the war. And if you enjoyed all of that, make sure you tune in to The Matthew Wright Show with Kevin O'Sullivan every weekday from 1 on Talk Radio.